0: Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Continuing on with our uh, genre of English furniture of the 18th century. Um, we're talking about uh, earlier on, we talked about Thomas Chippendale, you know, the great innovator of, uh, he had a great shop, great workshop studio, um, how he influenced design by the director. And we talked about the uh, Adam and uh, now we're going to, to continue with it with the next uh, stylistic change, Robert. We talked about Robert Adam. Now we're going to talk about George Heppelwhite. So, uh, major major uh, uh, tour de forces in in the uh, in the area of interior and exterior decoration. So, so let's talk about George Heppelwhite in uh, Heppelwhite in England. Uh, George Heppelwhite fame on the publication of the Cabinetmaker Maker and Upholster's Guide which was undertaken by his widow two years after his death. The title ends from drawings by A. Happelwhite and Company cabinet makers, but it is by no means certain that he was responsible for the drawings. Apart from this book, little is known about the man except that he was an apprentice to the firm Gillow of Lancaster and later set up shop in Red Cross Street, Cripplegate, there is no single piece of furniture that can definitely be ascribed to Heppelwhite, nor is there any evidence that he was patronized by any great person. Isn't that interesting? Really. A year after the publication of the first edition of the Cabinetmaker's Guide, a second was printed, and then in 1794 a third and improved edition appeared. As Sheridan had commented prior to the last edition, that this work had already caught the decline. It may be that this remark prompted the authors to change some of the designs. However, this was the first large trade directory to appear for over 20 years, and as it contains about 300 pieces, it needs consideration at some length. The development of furniture during the last 25 years of the century owed much to Adams Neoclassicalism, and in this, the drawings from Heppelwhite's book are not exceptional. Most of the furniture illustrated is inlaid in satinwood with marquetry and many different woods. It is true that very elegant pieces were made at this time, especially small tables and chairs, but the object of this book and the talk was to. Add so much to aid the country craftsman to affect the cabinet maker. The name of Heppelwhite has come to be synonymous with a type of chair, basically, that was very popular at the end of the 18th century, which we now call a shield bag chair. In the first edition of the guide, there are 24 separate drawings of chairs of this kind, including four which are described as cabriole chairs. The opening remarks concern the dimensions of the chairs generally, and it is recommended they should be in width in the front 20 inches, depth of seat 17, and height of the of the seat frame 17 inches. Total height about 3 feet 1 inch. But I, I feel that adds that they're frequently adapted according to the size of the room or the pleasure of the purchaser. So Heppelwhite, when designing, would, again, design the height and the width, the breadth of the chair to the room and to the client in question. Chairs are generally made of mahogany and might be covered in horsehair, plain, striped, checkered, etc. There was apparently a new fashion for painting and lacquering chairs, for there is a whole paragraph devoted for them in the book, pointing out specimens which are particularly well adapted to that style. A chair, in fact, made of mahogany, but very closely resembling one of these drawings, is uh, is one of his greatest works. It was also suggested that these decorated chairs should be covered in linen or cotton to accord with the general hue of the chair. In most cases, the shield put uh, put a, the sh- the shield part of the back is plain, with the decoration extending only occasionally to the shield itself. The interior of the shield was made with a center splat, pierced and either plain in the country-made chairs, or very uh, vigorously carved. The most popular motifs were the Prince of Wales feathers, the wheat ear, the classical urn, or hanging drapery. These were most ingeniously worked, sometimes nearly to fill the shield, while in others the splat is narrow and contains only two-shaped urns, or bars. Chairs with oval backs and heart-shaped backs were made and an example of the, the latter, and these seem to have been popular. square back chairs were in the first edition of the guide, but were probably not fashionable until the last decade of the 18th century. The shield back chair was made with an upholstered back, and many of these survived both in sets and in single examples, and especially the fine one that uh, has almost a, a Prince of Wales feather for the backsplat. splat. Heppelwhite calls these chairs cabriole, <clears throat> though why they were so-called is not known. Only one of the six shield-backed chairs illustrated has a French leg, and this is on a page in the book in which the chairs are not described as cabriole. Chair legs were usually straight or tapered, either square shaped, fluted or molded in the Adam tradition. But occasionally the end of the leg curved outwards. The knee was carved or decorated with tusks and the seat rail was often shaped, either serpentine or bowed. Only the finest examples, the carving and shaping show to great effect. There are also three designs for hall chairs which according to Hepplewhite are very much improved. This type, which is most often seen as either a more, (coughs) a more shaped or more oval back and a solid wooden seat. The center of the back has a coat of arms painted on it, but the rest of the chair is plain. In none of the designs, except for a type of wing chair called the saddle check or easy chair. Are there any stretchers? However, these were added by country makers for they strengthen the construction of the chairs even if they detracted from its line. There are five drawings for stools and six for window stools in the first edition of the guide. And it is suggested that they be made and covered in the same materials as the chairs with a preference for mahogany and japanning and taberry or moreen, or a pea green or light other color. A French leg is drawn similar to the one on the cabriol chair. For three of the four stools, and a number of these pieces still survive with both serpentine and straight seat rails. The fifth stool is called a gouty stool, which stands on four plain square legs and has a top which may be altered in height and angle. The window stools were made to stand close to the wall under the window and therefore depended for size and proportion on the windows, but their heights should not exceed the heights of the chairs. All six stools, um, as we've talked about, have straight tapering legs, either square or round, but examples exist, dating from the 1780s with a curved French leg. Exposed in car, they're exposed and car with various motifs. Well, in one example, the seat rail has materials gathered in ruches hung from it, Two particularly fine examples are those on fluted, those on <clears throat> those on fluted tapering legs and decorated in, in fine gilt. The next uh, the next area we're going to talk about of the guide is devoted to sofas, and of these uh, there's about five upholstered seats and backs, while the sixth is a chair-backed one, with four splatted shield-shaped sections. This is described as of modern invention, but the general purpose of the same as the back chair back settees of the early eighteenth century, the first four designs are similar to many of the most elegant chairs in the (coughs) elegant most elegant of chairs, in that they have flowing graceful lines to the back and stand on taper legs. Heppelwhite suggests that they should be between six and seven feet in length and about 30 inches in depth, while the height of the backs corresponds to the height of the recommended for the chairs, <clears throat> 3 feet 1 inch. A few similar settees of about 5 feet were made, but these are very, very uncommon. There are drawings for a com- uh, a confidante and a duchess, which were both popular in France at the time. The first consists of a large settee with a chair added to each end, And the drawing is very similar to the one, the one that we just talked about, which is decorated in gilt. The second is a sofa made up of two bergère chairs, with a stool in the center, and may be used in the drawing room or the bedroom. It was a forerunner of the day bed, which became very popular during the first decade of the nineteenth century. The popularity of sideboards and side tables increased. Greatly at the end of the 18th century and two distinct types were made. The first and more practical was a center drawer on the frieze and a deep drawer on the other side. One of these has wine compartments for bottles and a space beyond these for cloths or napkins. The whole depth of the drawer, while the other side is divided into two drawers, one lined in green baize to hold plates and the other lined in, in lead for the convenience of holding water to wash glasses, etc., there must be a, a, <clears throat> a valve cork or plug in the bottom to let off the dirty water. The center drawer was also used for keeping table linens. A mahogany, size, a mahogany sideboard of this type is well worth mentioning. The banding is rosewood and the top is serpentine inlay. And there is one drawer above the shaped central arch. The second type was a side table without drawers, and was designed to use as a part of a supporting urge on stands. These tables were usually straight, straight fronted, and surmounted by four legs. Yet, but in the, the example of the guide, there are six legs and far more elegant frieze. But these <coughs> were inlaid in these. But these friezes were inlaid. With many types of wood, like rosewood, hairwood, which again is sycamore, kingwood, tulipwood, and satinwood are painted with classical motifs of swags or festoons, of flowers, urns, patre, and honeysuckle. Marble tops were used, but not so often in the Adam designs. The illustrated example, which you can see, is in the mahogany with taper feet and frieze. And the frieze are banded in satinwood, and the legs are fluted ending in, in a square tapering toe while each uh, while each of the ends are square. Tables of this kind were made for, from five feet to seven feet in length and were often placed in recesses which gave them <clears throat> which, which made for them. This seems to have been the case in the, the Grandeur dining room where they were initially made en suite with a pair of pedestals and vases, one of which served as a plate warmer being provided with racks and a stand for the for the heating system and the air conditioning system, so so for the heater and and it's lined with strong tin. The other pedestal is used for a pot cupboard. The vases which surmounted these pedestals were for holding water for this <coughs> and for the use of the butler or ice water for drinking, enclosed in an inner partition with ice surmounting it or the ice class playing with itself. These pieces of furniture were most likely made from inlaid panels and painted or inlaid wood. The pedestals were designed to be the same height as the vases about 67 inches high and the only larger dining room could be the one that had formed on the right side. And we can let them come again tomorrow night if they would like that, that's fine. Two other pieces of furniture were also popular. The cellarette and the knife box the first was unusually made of mahogany and banded in brass for strength and decoration. The interior was divided like that of a bottle drawer on the, on the first on the first type of sideboard and it was lined in lead. They were either oval or octagonal in shape and stood on tapering um, square legs. These pieces were placed either near or under the side table. The knife boxes were made to be placed either on the side table or the pedestals. So these pieces were first designed by Adam, who was much interested in making the design of dining dining rooms as most important. As for, he said, the eating rooms are considered as the apartments of conversation In which one, in which we could pass a great deal, a part of our country, we could lend a a lot of spine on these type of tables. Considerable prominence is also given to pieces. For the for the library, notably bureau bookcases, desks, and secretary bookcases, they were usually made of good mahogany. The bureau bookcase was popular and, and was produced in large numbers. The top was given a variety of different shapes of glazing bar or, by the over-ornamenting, the top in a, in a scroll of foliage, the, <clears throat> the a base a bust or other ornament, which may be in mahogany or gilt or of a light-colored wood. Their proportions do not show great variety, varying in width from about 3 feet 6 inches to about 4 feet 3 inches in height. From three feet to, to two inches to three feet to five inches, and depending on the size of the height of the room, the fall always enclosed small drawers or pigeonholes. The secretary bookcase followed very similar principles, except that instead of a fall front to which to write the top drawer pulled out and the front hinged down, it was fixed by by means of spring and quadrant the <clears throat> The base either has drawers or sliding shelves for keeping clothes implying that this piece could be used in the bedroom. Desks or library tables were most simple in appearance and were usually made from mahogany with no exceptions. So, these pieces, they either had drawers which ran halfway back and thus could be used by two people, or one side had drawers on the other covers. In exceptional cases, the desk might have been slapped the ends or decoration down the sides of the drawers or cupboards. But these forms are rare. Bookcases could be made easily in satin wood, but with common mahogany and the panels inlaid of various woods. The side panels could be extended so that the, uh, the whole piece of mite may reach 10 feet in width or even more. This will be the front frame of our, our small structure here. The mounted either a cupboard or or drawers, while a similar arrangement or alternative drawers and cupboards was continued on either side. The top was reserved for keeping the books with glazed doors, including shelves and the pediment, which could be topped by an urn or a broken arch. The chest of drawers and commodes feature in the guide and are described as dressing drawers and commodes. The first of these diverse uh then the second forms are the serpentine or bow fronted and they have the top drawer fitted with compartments and a mirror occasionally with a brushing slide between the top drawer and the 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 top of the chest the drawers to which are elegantly ornamentated with or inlaid (coughs) with painted work which is applied with great beauty and elegance to this piece of furniture so these chests are especially pleasing to satin wood but <clears throat> but some are more common in mahogany. The chest on chest was a real uh, stunner this morning. So the the chest of drawers was a real stunner. It is a it, it it may be plainer, but its rectangular shape, with three long and two short drawers, the commode is adapted for a drawing room, and being used in principal rooms requires considerable elegance. It is most often made in satin wood and is inlaid on the doors and top in many different woods. This piece may be of many shapes, but the most common are the half round and the serpentine front. It is in satin wood with a uh, circular painting panel on the center door in the classical manner. While the panels on the same side doors are oval, the doors on the cross-banded rosewood, as if the top which has been painted border or entwined flowers and ribbons, The other commode offers an interesting contrast, relying more on the boldness of the inlay rather than on the painting for the effect with the satin wood standing out strongly against the harewood background. Tables of many interesting designs are drawn, among them the Pembroke, which became increasingly favored, and the Pier Table. These are both similar in the dining room side tables as a rule, and could therefore be placed in many rooms. The Pembroke had two flaps and was the most often rectangular or oval sh- in shape and stood on tapering square oval legs. The top were inlaid either in a mahogany or satinwood or hairwood ground with arabesque or geometrical patterns of marquetry inlaid. There is a fine example in satinwood and of an serpentine shape with a banding of rosewood inlaid with circles. And pieces of satinwood, the oval panels at the, in the top and sides are of rosewood inlaid with hairwood panels and satinwood. These pieces were made to stand free in a room, but are admirable also when placed against a sofa. Peer tables were not to uh, such a general use as the Pembroke tables, for they had to stand up against the wall, so they could admit with great uh, proprietary of much elegance and adornment. They were also made, just passed and made especially to stand under mirrors, with, in certain cases, the mirrors resting on the top of the table. So, and so they are a little uh, liable to be on the higher-than-other-table side. There are illustrated four such tables and also four separate tops to different and fine designs in his book. Variously shaped from the elliptical to the most rectangular. These tops are all either to be inlaid or painted and made to stand on tapering square feet or round or cabriole legs, of which there is an example with which a gilded base and with the shape frieze. The top is inlaid satin wood and has around it a gadrooned or malo stand. Occasional tables were made in great variety and profusion during the last 20 years of the 18th century. The continuing habit of drinking tea accounted for many of these and became customarily for each person to have a table of his own from which he could eat and drink. By this time, the price of tea had dropped and also the tea had become fashionable. This form of entertaining came from France, where large numbers of numbers of people used it to sit down on a tea or coffee tables at eight o'clock. Beside these tea or urn tables, there were small writing tables of the type found around is a burr, El- burr elm, which has a crazy um, which has a tray below, which joins the shape or the taper legs all together. So the front door opens from the side and across the front there is a slide on which to write a note. Pembroke's, Pembroke's table and the prior table and which we're, uh, were half round in shape, but others do exist from this from time to time and hold the and great experiment and design still moving in future. In plain mahogany, the insides of the tables were usually covered in base, but sometimes they had a wooden interior. The producers of the guide are much concerned with beds which they regard as articles of much importance as well as the counts of the great expense attending grain as the vertically uh, <coughs> verticality of shapes and the high degree of elegance which may be shown in them they advise the balances uh, and should be tried up in festoons or gathered full um, and gathered up in full, and so any materials might be used in a, a white dimitry, which is printed cottons and Manchester stuffs were thought suitable. All the beds have posts, and the head and foot are all domed. The corners could be in carved mahogany, gilded, painted, or Japan, and the ornaments produce the most likely effect. Other forms of decorations were st- were staffed, were, were were stuffed headboards and arms with other ornaments carved and gilded, girandoles and mirrors followed closely on Adam designs and were most highly carved with the classical motifs of the urn, festooned drapery, uh, <clears throat> pendant tusk with the eagle with spreadings, spread wings, and the borders of these mirrors, both round and rectangular. considered of a plain frame which which enriches on the top and spreading from the bottom. They were largely drawn to go over tables and commodes placed between the windows, but tended to become more stylized and dependent on the decoration of the room. Although it is, is stated in the guide that they may be carved and colored suitable to the room. Glass remained expensive, especially large sheets. The cabinet maker's London book of prices, um, which continues drawings by Shepheard and and the and the uh, the, uh, the and the and the furniture himself. His importance lies in the collection of drawings made in the guide. So it's all about the collections. Among the most important cabinet makers working at the time, were Seddon, Thomas Jippendale, the Younger Gillows. The first name had premises on Aldersgate Street where he employed 80 craftsmen by 1768. When the building was destroyed by fire, the 1789 his stock and trade was worth 118,000 pounds with that, that uh, 9,000 uh, pounds being on hand. In the diary of a young German girl called Sophie von La Roche, translated by Claire Williams in 1953, there appears a very full description of the house in Applesgate Street and some impressions of Sedum. So it is interesting to note also that the number of specialized branches of furniture making that Sedum undertook, especially the making of ornament mounts in the glass making Matthew Bolton um, who with James Watt produced an um, an improved steam engine with a rotary motion in 1781 was a man with <clears throat> wide pro uh, widespread interest among them making fine ormolu he with another midland ironmaster John Williamson helped with the improvement of the of the of roads by exerting pressure on the turnpike thrust. So, turnpike thrust and so, with better communications, metalwork became cheaper. This in turn helped the makers in England, for they could then compete with the French, who until this time had had a virtual monopoly. And glassmaking became cheaper, and a new process was introduced in France from 1773. Is that good? Mm -hmm. 1773. The firm of (coughs) Gillows built premises on what was called Oxford Road, now Oxford Street, during the early 1770s. Although their main workshops continued to be in Lancashire, these pieces being sent down by sea instead of by cart. The firm was well-known for being inexpensive and supplying good craftsmanship. A German visitor, P.A. Nemich, comments in 1807, their work is in good and solid, though not of the first class in investment and style. So after the death of the great Thomas Chippendale in 1779, the firm continued with his son and Haig as partners until Haig retired in 1796. During the year 1796 and 1797, Chippendale was employed by Lord Harewood in Yorkshire and in London. The quality and craftsmanship was maintained and some very fine pieces in the Regency style still, still survive in Harewood and Stanhead. In 1804, the firm went bankrupt and the stock trade was sold by auction including commodes, chiffoniers, chest of drawers, sofas, cards and writing tables, and several sets of dining chairs and breakfast tables. However, the firm continued to trade until at least 1820. The younger Chippendale died in 1832. And that's it. Uh, A lot of information about George Heppelwhite um, here. So again, one of the great design swings, um, a lot of his, Heppelwhite's notoriety, but goes back to the shield back chair. So anyway, hope everyone enjoyed this. Uh, It was a bit long, but uh, let's pick it up next time with uh, Thomas Sheraton, the last of the great English 18th century English designers. So uh, signing out, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist.